I have spent my entire life telling people that I grew up in the most haunted village in England. Coggeshall in Essex, the most haunted village in England, according to an article in the Daily Star someone showed me when I was 11. Oh, yeah, we've got ghosts, mate. We've got Robin the Woodcutter. We've got the ghost monks at Cradle House. We've got the poltergeist of 47 Church Street. Not that I really believe in ghosts, but I like the air of mystery it creates. I recognise that hometown pride can be a strange type of pride, but, uh, but I feel it, you know, it's, uh, it's part of me. And I know that I'm not alone in that feeling either. Every town, it seems, has some claim to fame. No matter how small the place, we're all part of the big jigsaw of history. Hello, is that Jacinta? Yeah, it's me, how are you? I was brought up near Oldham and I was always interested going into town. There's a great big bridge over the road emblazoned with Welcome to Oldham, home of the tubular bandage. Voted <laughs> the second worst place in England to live. I can't believe Ilford can be the second worst place to live. It is a bit of a boring town to come from. The only famous person ever to have come from Ilford is Dame Maggie Smith. What is she in Harry Potter, Professor Donegal? Born and raised in, in Luton, which gets a lot of negative press. Claims to fame that the most number of straw boaters worn in a confined area. And the other one is the most haiku written about a UK town. And people who don't come from Ilford, they'll sometimes say to you, Jacinta, did you know that Dame Maggie Smith comes from Ilford? And then as an Ilford girl, you're always like, I was born. No, <laughs> Maggie Smith came from Ilford. It's like all we ever say to each other. Instead of hello, we're like, Dame Maggie Smith, she was born in Ilford, she was. <laughs> Someone else on my list said that Luton was the home of mercury poisoning. Care to comment? Um, blimey, no, I, I know nothing of that. Certainly, I'm sure we poison people with mercury as enthusiastically as any other town of comparable size. But, um... I grew up in Grantham, which claims to be the home of gingerbread. I spent a lot of my childhood in Preston, where it is strongly claimed that we have the largest bus station in Europe. It's, I think it was 1740, a guy called William Eggleston created gingerbread by accident. He put the wrong ingredient into his biscuit mix. That's the story I know. Some people hate us non-Prestonians uh, claim that it's the second largest, but we are having none of it. How do you respond to uh, a town of Market Drayton that also claims to be the home of gingerbread? The football team in our hometown is nicknamed the Gingerbreads. I don't think uh, the claim is unfounded. <laughs> Hearing my friends speak so confidently about their towns um, just made me feel a little less certain about my own claim. I just, I felt this, this seed of doubt growing in my mind. What if, what if Coggeshall wasn't the most haunted village in England? To even pose that question filled me with existential despair. One quick Google search later and there it was.
So for this week's Open Country, I've come to Pluckley, which is near Ashford in Kent. And this village has quite a sinister claim to fame. It is apparently the most haunted village in Britain. Pluckley. Pluckley? In Kent? The most haunted village in England? Pluckley? It has lists of ghosts. There's 12 recognised named ghosts, but then other people say there's an awful lot more. I mean, I think somebody's counted something like 28. It turns out Pluckley even has its own pre-existing Radio 4 documentary. And it's a full half hour. I only get nine minutes for mine. Coggeshaw doesn't even get a mention in the top 100 Google hits. It's all Pluckley. Most haunted village in England. Philip Schofield talking about Pluckley. Most haunted in Pluckley. Pluckley has even featured in an episode of Top Gear. James May and Richard Hammond spending a night sleeping in a car in Pluckley's screaming wood. They've got a screaming wood. And here's the kicker. The accolade is verified by the Guinness Book of Records. Awarded in 1989, 12 officially verified ghosts. How does that even work? If I'm not from the most haunted village in England, I don't know who I am. In that moment, if there was anything I could do to steal back that title for the glory of Coggeshall, I would do it. Conveniently, for Pluckley, the Guinness Book of Records has now shuttered that particular category because Guinness don't discuss old records, apparently. I was left no choice. I called Jackie Grebby, chairman of the Kent History Federation. Hello. Hello, Jackie. It's, uh, it turns out it's when Jackie lived in Pluckley, she got a lot of nuisance calls from the media. The fact that Jackie doesn't even believe in ghosts probably made the haranguing even worse. I thought I'd got rid of Pluckley when we moved, but it keeps coming back to... Haunt you. It's followed you, Jackie. It still yes. won't let you go. I tell Jackie that I am from the real most haunted village in England, and I set out my intentions to steal the title back for my people. No, no, no. You, you, you don't want that um, notoriety. Seriously, you don't. During the 90s and the early 2000s, it escalated unbelievably. You had so many young, enthusiastic party-goers who had too much to drink do a lot of damage in and around the village. There were sort of egg and flowering houses, shouting and, and throwing stones and letting off fireworks and everything and just getting too tanked up, as they say. None of which seems like effective ghost-busting activity. It almost feels as if people aren't coming to Pluckley to role-play as ghost hunters after all. It's more like they're coming to role-play as ghosts. The following year, the police came in and closed the street, so you had to have a pass if you wanted to get to your house. Following the police lockdown, Pluckley decided their ghosts needed a more positive PR makeover. The council decided that perhaps if we turned it into a family event... It wouldn't be quite so attractive for the um, party-goers. Only it didn't quite work, because not only did we get all the party-goers, we got all the families turning up. <laughs> and it was unbelievable. You couldn't get into the village. At its height, the parish council asked for the media to do a complete block, media block, 
on Pluckley for Halloween. A media blackout briefly provided Pluckley with the exorcism it so badly needed. But after a while, the TV programme started up again, and soon the shrieking tourists returned. It seems that Pluckley's ghosts have always had a close relationship with the media. The partnership goes back nearly 60 years. Desmond Carrington moved into the village. Troublemaker. Yep, and he was in there back in the 60s. And he wrote an article in, I think it was the TV Times, right. about the 12 ghosts of Pluckley. And round about that same sort of time, the local theatre group did a film, you know, with ghosts in it, Pluckley's 12 Ghosts. Unfortunately, I've not seen the film. It was so popular, it just disintegrated. (laughs) 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 And even if that particular piece of celluloid has long turned to dust, it seems Pluckley's Faustian pact with the media lives on. An endless syndication. I ask Jackie what she wishes Pluckley could be known for instead. We've got another, even better, nicer quieter, more genteel claim. The Darling Buds of May. Everybody loves the Darling Buds of May. That was great. That was busier than Halloween. You talking about Darling Buds of May does remind me some of uh, Lovejoy was filmed in Coggeshall. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe I can lean on that a little bit as well. Welcome to Lovejoy country. It's got a nice kind of ring to it. I did like Lovejoy, I must admit. I think it stands up. I enjoy that. Yeah, Mm. yeah, absolutely. Maybe not all ghosts of television past are malicious. After all. They do a good beer festival. Do you know what? I didn't... There you go. I didn't even know that. I think the National Trust did it. There's some nice things in Essex, I must admit. It is good. It's good bird watching. Thanks, Jackie. I appreciate that. So that opening story was broadcast on BBC Radio 4 last month. It was produced by Eleanor McDowell for Falling Tree Productions. Also, thanks to Jackie Grebby and also to my friends who appeared at the start of it. That's Tony Walsh, Lee Nelson, Byron Vincent, Jacinda Nandy and Nick Holloway. So at the end of that story, um, me and Jackie got talking about the TV show Lovejoy. And it occurs to me, non-British listeners to the podcast might have never seen the TV show Lovejoy. So let me just provide a uh, slight potted history of the show. So Lovejoy starred... The, um, the unmistakable face of British actor Ian McShane. Now, this is some years before Ian McShane became internationally famous for playing Al Swearingen in Deadwood. Although, even in the 90s, McShane's face still carried that uh, incredible... Uh, his, his face still had that a little bit of that worn-out couch in the basement kind of vibe. Still very sexy, though. That man has always had eyelashes for days. I think I like you, Lovejoy. You're a romantic so-and-so, aren't you? Hmm. One of a dying breed. So, 
Yes, uh, Ian McShane plays the eponymous hero, Lovejoy, a picaresque antique dealer who spends his summers, it's always summertime in Lovejoy, he spends his summers bombing about small English country towns in a Morris Minor convertible, playing the antiques game. He's conning the counterfeiters, he's double dealing the dealers, aided by his apprentice Eric, his financier Lady Jane, and an alcoholic dandy called Tinker. Oh, Lovejoy, I'm not allowed to drive. Now you have to understand Lovejoy, he was not your granddad's antique dealer, he was a rebel. He was this young, he was not young, but uh, he still had a kind of 90s slacker vibe about him. He was a a Gen X antiques dealer. He was messy. He had a leather jacket and a thick black mullet. And he fucked. Lovejoy fucked. He was a a charming dirtbag, basically. He also had very loosely defined magic powers. Uh, Even people who watched Lovejoy in the 90s might have forgotten this. Lovejoy had a magic gift that enabled him to tell a fake from an original just by touching it. It was a very localised magical power. It only worked on antiques. Very much a fourth-tier X-Man power, but power nonetheless, as well as the ability to know the age of a table by touching it. Um, Lovejoy did. He had a, he had a second magic power. A, a, a magical power that enabled him to talk to the camera, which he did irregularly. He'd often wait just long enough until you'd forgotten he could, like about an episode and a half, and then, bam, he'd whip around and give the camera both barrels. We thought we were invisible, but Lovejoy could see us all along. Now, I never really understood why the writers of the show put those to camera bits in because it never really seemed to add anything to the story but um, I, I gave it some thought this week and um, and I came up with a theory I think Lovejoy was able to talk to the camera because his understanding of craftsmanship was so astute so preternaturally powerful that it transcended the fictive shell of Lovejoy's reality. Lovejoy understood craftsmanship so well, he could intuit that he himself was inside a television program. Lovejoy knew that his reality, as he experienced it, his world of endless summer japes across small country villages, chasing antique MacGuffins into the beds of heiresses. Lovejoy knew, he knew that this reality, despite its verisimilitude, was in fact the creation of unseen craftsmen, the craft of Sunday night light TV drama. Lovejoy could reach out whenever he wanted and touch the interior of the fictive shell of his world. He could run his hand along it and and feel the craftsmanship, the writers, the set designers, the editors. That's how good he was at recognising quality antiques. 
he could tell that he was in one. If this is new to you, if you've um if you've never heard about Lovejoy before this podcast, you might now be thinking, wow, what an incredible postmodern television program. I should seek it out. It sounds really good. Well, you're, you're half right. It's it, it's sort of good. It's fine. It's all right. But the flaws and all, still, I will take it. You know, I, I would be more than honoured to consider Lovejoy the patron saint of my childhood town. I think a wholesome TV connection like that, I mean, it could be good for tourism. It's been good for some other places. You know, Cornwall has cashed in on its association with Poldark. Bampton in Oxford has done uh, has done really well out of Downton Abbey fans. The phenomenon, as it turns out, I looked it up, it even has a name, it's called Set Jetting. It's a spoonerism, do you get it? Set jetting. It seems like actually no one outside of one journalist actually calls it that. But still, that's what it's called. The term, uh, it turns out, was uh, coined by journalist Gretchen Kelly in an article in the New York Post in 2008. And uh, for the record, Gretchen, like, I think you're right and the world is wrong. I like set jetting. Maybe it didn't catch on because people find... Spoonerisms, gauche, but come on, discovering a reversible phrase like set jetter, that's like that's like coming across a double rainbow. It's practically self-created. Gretchen was just there to bear witness, and bear witness we should. You got to flow with the current of language and these type of things, not against it. So I'm gonna call it set jetting, right? I, I cannot resist that sweet piece of journalese. Saying that, though, I mean, I do understand why people might resist it. You know, the, the silly wordplay is probably the icing on the cake, but I think it's actually the phenomenon itself that people find slightly embarrassing. Maybe because this particular brand of tourism exposes something about us that we'd rather not admit, i.e., that many of us feel a closer emotional connection to fiction than to the stories of our history. Of course, like, the stories of history are also heavily fictionalised for our entertainment, you know, particularly on tourism trails. I mean, just because a tour guide in a natty waistcoat tells us, oh, that's the chair that Louis XIV was sitting on when he invented ballet, doesn't necessarily make it so. So let's not invest too much in this clean distinction between fiction and reality, right? Everything is a bit of a blend. And if one person travels to Dune Castle in Stirling because it was once occupied by Bonnie Prince Charlie during the Jacobite Rising, and another person travels there because Monty Python once launched a fake cow off the top. Let's just say those two people have slightly different tastes in stories. Actually, not that different taste in stories, if you know both our stories. I mean, if those two tourists cross paths, they probably get on. Both pilgrimages are 
fundamentally fueled by a personal connection to narrative. This is just my clumsy way of saying, let's not be too embarrassed by set jetting. I don't think we should beat ourselves up for just liking a good story. I've made my own pilgrimages over the years. I've been to the cafe in Glasgow where Renton and Spud share a milkshake in train spotting. I've had my photo taken at the street corner where Renton gets hit by a car in train spotting. I think most of mine may well turn out to be train spotting related. I don't think I realized that before. Uh, I do remember though, when I arrived at those locations, I, I can feel the film inside me. You know, like these little fake memories, these little clips of celluloid edited into my own thoughts. I could work out where to stand to exactly mirror the eye of the camera. I, I, could, I could practically see those scenes playing out in front of me. I wonder if, uh, if this just might be the closest I've ever been to seeing a ghost. After all, you know, what is a ghost story if not a story so powerful that it ends up lingering in a space somehow? A drama that ends up getting coded into the bricks and mortar. It's a, it's a narrative virus that takes over a piece of architecture, a room or a house or a street, kept alive by um, those that return to it retelling that same story over and over. But then again, try too hard. You might get the fucking job. <laughs> exactly. Nightmare. It's a tightrope spud. It's a fucking t- Nightmare. It's a tightrope spud. It's a fucking Nightmare. It's a tightrope spud. It's a fucking tightrope. So, in that sense, is Set Jetting's closest descendant the ghost tour? The two forms of tourism feel like mirror images of each other. And if so, then well, that kind of backs up some of the things me and Jackie touched on at the end of our conversation about how Pluckley and Coggeshall towns once coded with stories of ancient deaths and traumas could easily be recoded with dramatic tales from the 20th century. New pixelated ghosts from 90s TV shows like Lovejoy and The Darling Buds of May. The tour companies would barely even have to change their route. It's still graveyard, church, alleyway, courtyard, except now your ghost is Catherine Zeta-Jones. Although, like, I think after hearing Jackie's story about Pluckley and how it was damned by its own success. I can appreciate these kinds of energies are still hard to control. Probably being a successful set jet destination is all about hitting the right latitude of obscurity. Now for Coggeshall, one episode from a 90s forgotten TV show is probably the right level of interest compared to say, uh, well, Dubrovnik in Croatia. AKA 
King's Landing and Game of Thrones, a destination now so popular, the city has had to put legal limits on the amount of fantasy nerds it allows onto its soil at any one time. Or um, how about this one? Maya Beach on the Fifi Islands of Thailand, uh, once made famous by the 2000 Leonardo DiCaprio film The Beach, was still in 2018 getting up to 5,000 tourists and 200 boats per day 18 years after that film still going strong so strong that Maya Beach has now been closed indefinitely to tourists because of feared permanent ecological damage so this example of set jetting this is where it starts to feel more like a genuine haunting right like the ghost of Leonardo DiCaprio's worst movie lingering in the darkness, still sucking the fucking life out of things, even after all these years. Bad things have happened here on Fifi Island. Terrible things happened a long, long time ago. Some of those things leave a trace behind. One last story off a set jet that feels like a ghost tour. Um, My wife and I were in New York last year for our honeymoon, and uh, we were doing a kind of literary pub tour, which is basically a tour of pubs where Dylan Thomas had injured or otherwise disgraced himself. Uh, On the tour, my wife got chatting to a fellow tourist from Ireland who'd just come back from a bit of set jetting of his own, His wife had gone on the Sex and the City tour in Greenwich Village while he'd gone on the Sopranos tour in New Jersey. It was okay, he said, although my wife got to drink cocktails and eat cupcakes all afternoon while most of my day was spent just standing around in car parks with the fella saying, well, this was the bin where they stuffed the corpse of so-and-so. I mean, this... This really feels to me like the... jagged, bleeding edge of set jetting. Making a pilgrimage to a car park where someone once pretended to stuff a corpse in a bin. This is set jetting with all the bells and whistles taken away. There's no sunbeds or gift shop. It's just you and the echo of a story and nothing else. I think there's something about this anecdote that um, it feels like it's pointing to a further future. Something I can't quite put my finger on. It just kind of suggests a world where anywhere could be a tourist destination. After all, like any room, any space can be fictionalised through a book or a film or a TV show, even a New Jersey car park. And once that arbitrary space enters the world of fiction, evidence suggests there will be people who want to travel there, like no matter how shitty the place. And I feel like this is good news for the future of British tourism. We've got some shitty places that could really benefit from being fictionalized right now. In time, 
It might happen. I don't expect anyone to set the new Sopranos in uh, my town of Peterborough anytime soon. Still, you know, I would expect the trend in set jetting to continue, slowly reshaping our narrative landscape into new bizarre shapes and stories. Expect more people to be taking photographs of car parks near you. I do feel almost unconsciously drawn to locations I know from TV. I suppose like they're kind of like weird boundary markers between the real world and the dream world, right? They're like they're like portals to my subconscious but made out of real brick and stone. Spaces like that, they don't have to be pretty to feel magic. They can be like a back alley, a a traffic intersection. They still have that power. It still doesn't explain why these places feel more real to me than the places that I actually live. You know, like the rooms and buildings where the story of my life happens. Why is it so hard to give my own house that same power? Like, it feels daft. The car park featured in The Sopranos should electrify me in a way that my own hallway has never done. I mean, maybe it's because my real-life story just isn't as exciting as The Sopranos. Like, thank God I've never had to whack an errant cousin. But nevertheless... Like, I think, I think it's something I could work on a little. I I could invest a little more mythos into my own life. Reimagine myself as a story told to others. I don't always have to go looking for ghost stories. You know, what's, what's wrong with haunting your own house once in a while? Hello, good evening, or should I say, good deadening. Welcome to the Peterborough Ghost Tour of the Supernatural. My name is the Scarlet Boatman, and I shall be tonight's guide for you through the streets of Peterborough. If you have not yet paid, please give two pounds right now to my associate Gavin, standing at the back there with the the top hat and the big teeth. And should you have any questions, please do not hesitate to ask. Well then, let us begin. Gather round. Gather round me here as I tell you the tale of Peterborough, a dark and mysterious city beating Rochdale and Huddersfield to be voted the worst place to live in England in 2019, possibly as a result of the mysterious ley lines that cross here. Spooky things happen when ley lines intersect. These strange invisible currents of energy might just be responsible for why so many people are sick in the street here or for all the noughties screamo bands that seem to be very active in this area, or maybe why it's taken nine fucking years just to build one cinema. Peterborough sure is a city of mysteries, not to mention ghostly unexplained sightings, for it was here, on this stretch of road, that a local once witnessed early one morning a ghostly figure. The figure had grey hair, but an eerily young face. Several witnesses saw 
this grey figure emerge from that house there, shuffle down the road, then, without warning, turn back around, walk back up the road again and go back into the house from whence it came. The ghostly figure did this five times over, each time emerging with an extra object that presumably it had forgotten the previous time. First it re-emerged with a hat, then a pair of headphones, then an asthma inhaler, and then a different hat, and then finally with no hat on. Who was this restless figure trapped in an endless cycle? What early appointment were they attempting to reach? No one knows. But it is said to this day that an air of exhaustion hangs over these streets and visitors to this area have claimed to feel an overwhelming tiredness descend upon them, a wanton paranoia that leaves them second-guessing their own life decisions, like whether or not they have the right-shaped head for a hat. Some leave and never wear a hat again. OK, if you would now like to follow me as we... Uh, please try to keep... OK, uh, welcome to Peterborough Asda, where many terrible things have occurred over the years. One of our most common ghost sightings is on this spot here, where a spectral, dishevelled man with grey hair and poorly fitting clothes is said to materialise every day at... Around 4.15 in the afternoon, the ghost appears and every day he examines the DVD selection, even though it's always the same DVDs on display. A couple of straight-to-video horror films that are definitely not as high production as their box art suggests, plus, like, as you can see, about ten copies of Justice League. And yet, the ghost always comes and stares for no reason. Several claim that they have heard the spirit whisper, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my life? Chilling stuff, I think you'll agree. Okay, if you follow me now, back outside. Uh, if you need to pick me up, um, Gavin has some small boxes of Smarties. You can have one Smartie for free or you can purchase an entire box off Gavin for 50p. It is raining now, but uh, as we like to say on these ghost tours, the rain only makes the depression more cinematic. Okay, um, moving on. Okay, guys, if everyone could just line up uh, against the wall there. Don't worry, I'm not about to execute you by firing squad. That was a joke. Just start a little way of letting you know that though we might be a little spooky around here, we still find ways to have a good laugh. So, this is our final location of the tour. It was on this spot here, four years ago, that two spectral figures, a man and a woman, were seen haunting this old bowling alley. Now, it may look to you guys as if this bowling alley has been abandoned altogether, but it is actually still in use. It's just nobody comes here because, as you can see, uh, all the computers are broken, so your bowling score is pretty much attributed at random, regardless of how many pins you knock down. So, on the fateful night in question, two figures materialised in the far lane of the alley, much to the amazement 
of the single member of staff who works here. Astonished, they rubbed their eyes. But yes, there was definitely multiple presences in the building with them. As deeply unlikely as that might seem. The two figures appeared to actually be bowling. One was a, a grey-haired, dishevelled-looking man. One was a younger blonde woman who could probably do much better. In between bowls, the, uh, the spirits would turn, look up at their scores above them, and then start to laugh hysterically. Almost as if they were drunk out of their tiny minds. Now, according to local historical records, we have come to believe that these two figures were an actual couple who, once upon a time, decided to move here and get a house together. Again, as unlikely as that might seem. Maybe, in fact, they were haunting this alley because this was one of the first things that they did together when they first moved to the city. The bowling alley employee said that the two ghosts bowled all night long, despite the fact that it made absolutely no sense to do so. Why engage in an activity so fundamentally broken? Why even come to a place like this at all? And why be so happy about it? The story of the laughing bowling couple remains a mystery to this day. A mystery that many like to ponder. A mystery of their happiness. Sometimes, if, uh, if you look really hard, you can still see them. Can you see them? Can you see them? Try squinting a bit now. So that's all for the podcast this month. If you'd like to support Imaginary Advice, you can do so by talking about the show on social media. Uh, word of mouth is incredibly important to me, so I really appreciate that. Otherwise, if you had a couple of minutes, you could write a review on iTunes. That's also really useful for the visibility of the show. Or if you're feeling really generous, uh, you could sign up to my Patreon page. This is an arrangement to send me a tiny bit of money every month to contribute towards the running of the podcast. Thank you to everyone who has pledged so far. I'm a small independent operation no advertising no team it's just me and a microphone it takes me a fair old whack of time to put an episode together so um yeah i'm trying to get to a point where that time is covered uh and slowly through your help um 
I'm getting there. Supporters on Patreon get bonus episodes. There's loads of new stuff up there this year. There's a, a three-part series on the 2011 England riots, plus um, bonuses from previous years as well. It's all there in the feed. Just go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Ross G. Sutherland to learn more. Anyway, listen, I'll be back soon with more imaginary advice. Take care of yourself. <laughs>